Some people think little girls should be seen and not heard. One, two, three, four! People do feel very radically different about gender experience. I mean, that's just like the rules of feminism. That diversity is like the number one thing I think that has to be reckoned with. Agenda with women in the arts. Good morning, you're listening to Agenda on FBI Radio, your Saturday morning fix of art, politics, news and trash from a feminist perspective. I'm Isabel Hawthorburn. And I'm Katie Winton and today we're talking about ironic masculinity <coughs> in Australian music and we'll be hearing from a bunch of great musicians including Hannah Crofts from All Our Exes Live in Texas, Melbourne DJ and Listen Records representatives Janine Noakes and keyboardist Freddie Krabs, plus Jared Richards who is the author of a junkie article that sparked... Um, pretty interesting conversation called Alex Cameron, Kieran J. Callanan and the problem with ironic toxic masculinity. Yeah, so we also want to hear from you. Is ironic toxic masculinity a problem in Australian music? Let us know on 0409 945 945. Up next, we're looking at the ongoing accusations levelled against Harvey Weinstein. We know this is an incredibly uh, triggering issue and we're not going to look at the accusations specifically, but we're probably going to focus more on the culture and attitudes that surround um, calling out sexual assault. We're also going to be joined by two incredible artists, Agatha Goth Snape and Megan Alex Kloon, who we love. Um, who'll be talking about <laughs> Agatha's yeah, Agatha's work, rhetorical chorus opening at Performance Based Live Works Festival of Experimental Art next week. We're also going to be chatting with Athena Thebus about Dreaming About You Woke Me Up. Is that Dreaming About You Oh no. I I, <laughs> I just like didn't get the intonation right. Dreaming About You Woke Me Up. There you go. Which is maybe she can say it better but yeah. um she's going to be talking about her solo exhibition which is on now at 55 Sydenham Road Marrickville and as always uh, we'll have our segment go home everything is terrible which does include some good news mm-hmm. um and we're going to be giving away a double pass to um a lecture at the art gallery of New South Wales that's happening tomorrow we'll be giving that pass away in about 20 minutes um the lecture is by Filipino artist Isa Hoxson whose choreography features in one of our all-time favorite Peaches film clips um so we're pretty excited about that lecture plus we have some new music from Miss Blanks, St Vincent and more but before that we're going to hear from Sydney artist Lupa J with her latest single it's called Moth you're listening to Agenda on FBI Radio. Take your chances, move to a love. 
to Agenda on FBI Radio. That right there was Looper J with Moth. This week it's been pretty impossible to ignore the explosive Harvey Weinstein scandal. It's left him fired from his own company, the Weinstein Production Company, apparently dumped by his wife and basically the butt of every late night joke in the role last week. So the ex- these kind of accusations have been whispered about since the 90s and probably even earlier than that and they are really horrifying stories. Um, and there's just so many of them as well. Um, but we've kind of been hearing these jokes about Weinstein for decades, really. There's like a 30 Rock scene that like pretty explicitly talks about it um, and even jokes of the Oscars. So it's kind of this institutional in-joke. Um, and so when the report was recently published in the New York Times, it, it confirmed those rumours, but also um, evidenced just how prolific his predation was um, and yeah, it's relentless. It's really, really incredible. Yeah, it seems like half of Hollywood kind of turned around and was like, oh, yeah, he's a massive creep. Um, but yeah, guess, it's like, welcome to Hollywood. Yeah. Harvey Weinstein's probably going to force himself on you. But I guess the problem isn't confined to the ent- entertainment industry, right? Like we saw women coming forward and sharing their experiences of when they met their first Harvey Weinstein. Um, and On Twitter. Yeah, mm. yeah, there was that whole thread that was started. And then there's also the Human Rights Commission, which estimates that about one in five women and one in 20 men have experienced sexual harassment in the workplace alone. Yeah, and that's just the workplace because it starts like in high school, basically. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, so many people have these kind of experiences of predators in the workplace. Um, and we began, when we were putting together, um, this week's show, we realized that we wanted to talk about that Twitter thread and how, you know, when this first happened to you. And then we realized that we probably, neither of us were really in a position where we wanted to go through that. It's like very re-traumatizing to kind of rehash those experiences. Um, and it often happens to people when they're younger and when they have very few financial options. Um, so we really wanted to acknowledge the bravery of the women in this case, um, in terms of Harvey Weinstein, who had gone public with these stories because it's a very common thing in many industries, but it's also a really challenging thing for people to come forward. I think there was a reductus article recently in the last couple of days that was like, I anonymously... Um, uh, what's it called? Like, made a, a statement against my rapist for the anonymous fame. Like yeah, I think there's a very strange kind of idea that's like, why didn't these women come forward yeah. earlier? And it's like, it's a horrible thing, and like, we're really conditioned to think that like 
the best way to get through those experiences is to just like pretend it never happened and just yeah like, and, and it's also and not really acknowledging that there's a really systemic problem absolutely. of you know like that it's it the the problem is not just with the individuals that experience that kind of trauma it's with a bigger system of oppression that doesn't actually listen to women when they tell those stories either mm. um, so we wanted to talk about the many women who haven't come forward because they felt like they'd done something wrong and they'd started out in their career and they didn't want to get blacklisted yeah I mean it's really good that Gwyneth Paltrow and Angelina um, Jolie kind of came forward when they were propositioned by Weinstein um, but it's also they were nominated for Oscars and they kind of got Brad Pitt to have a word on their behalf. But a lot of the women um, didn't come forward because they didn't have those kind of options. Um, and there was a Twitter thread, as we said, that was called um, when, when you meet your first to Harvey Weinstein that illustrated the way that predators operate and specifically the way that they target people they anticipate won't implicate them, um, which I think is really important to acknowledge. A lot of the reasons that people don't come forward in these situations is the reason that they were targeted in the first place. Um, it's very specific and calculated. So Rebecca Solnit has a really wonderful essay that Mari will be posting on our show page about the Weinstein scandal, um, which is no, by no means an anomaly um, and a, a problem in Hollywood. It's a, but um, she kind of talks about how this scandal isn't unusual, but it is a really important moment for us to rethink masculinity. Yeah, not often on agenda do we hold up a man for relating his own experience to one of female oppression. But I think we really have to do give it up for Terry Crews this week as well. Yeah, so Terry Crews is a former NFL player, but you probably know him from Brooklyn, Brooklyn Nine Nine. He's the cop that like cries all the time, talks about <laughs> his babies. He's a really cute character. Um, he's in. Everyone hates Chris, I think, as well. Why does um, everyone hates Chris? Oh, it was like a, it's like a Channel Ten show. I don't know if it's on TV anymore, but um, he was like the really scary dad in it. But anyway, Cruz says um, he almost lashed out at a man, but stopped himself once he realized how it would be portrayed. So basically, um, a, a different Hollywood executive uh, groped him at a party, and he was tweeted the other day. Oh about like how he was going to like punch the guy but then he thought oh a 20 pound 240 pound black man stumps at Hollywood honcho and he would have just gone to jail would have been the headlines yeah yeah that would have been the headline yeah done that tell you what I love about that is that at no point did he mention his daughters (laughs) yeah he had a really it was really good he um he decided he, he was really honest about it he said he's decided not to take further action because he didn't want to be ostracized um because like part of the course when the predator has power and influence, um, that's why not many people come forward. And he kind of acknowledged that, that like why he understands why so many women chose not to come forward and you need to have the kind of power in numbers so that you won't be blacklisted, which like Rose McGowan is blacklisted. Yeah. She can't be on Twitter anymore. Exactly, like, yeah. And he talked, yeah. Yeah. He talked about his experience and how it helped him to understand how women in many industries would be reluctant to come forward. And he also didn't base his empathy on the fact that he had a daughter or a sister or a wife. Yeah, really important. So um, Hunter Harris has an amazing article for Vulture, um, and I'm just going to quote him here. Only a sociopath needs a daughter or a sister, a girlfriend, a wife, or even a lady standing in front of him at Starbucks to make him queasy enough at the thought of a sexual predator in his industry to do something about it. You don't need a daughter to feel guilty about working with a man who preys on young women or about not acting to stop him. You just need a conscience. Yeah, there are many women who chose to come, not to come out because they were embarrassed, guilty, young, made to feel too ugly. This is what we need to remember when we hear the calls of like, why did women wait so long to report it? Mm. 
Yeah, and why did they take the money um, to sign the non-disclosure statement, those yeah. kind of things? Why do they, did they accept the role? Why did they stay friends with him? It's a very complex kind of... Um, yeah, it's so reductive to just assume that everyone is in a position where they can go and like publicly kind of talk about that experience as well. Yeah, absolutely. That's and such an emotionally taxing thing to talk about. Yeah. Why would you want to talk about it in front of everyone on, on a very like social facing um, mm. platform? Yeah, in in the uh, the cut by New York Magazine has a really interesting article um, titled "I'm a Coward," and I think that's how people do feel when they don't come forward in those instances. They feel like a coward for not doing anything while they're being assaulted. Then they feel like a coward afterwards because they didn't call them out. But then that is kind of cum- there's like a cumulative feeling of guilt in the aftermath when all these other women come forward yeah. and they, they say that he's attacked them and they think, oh, well, because I didn't say anything, I'm partly responsible. And of course, like, they're not the coward. The coward is the person that is, like, repeatedly... In this case, it's Harvey Weinstein, but there are a lot of Harvey Weinsteins and they're not all in Hollywood. Yeah, and I think there's something in having other people talk about it that creates a community or a sense of support which mm. enables people to then come out and share their experiences you know like mm. they're, they're, that wouldn't be possible without other people there to support you because historically women don't get listened to when they talk about this kind of thing so yeah but there are people that do listen and if this story has um, affected you or somebody that you know there is the New South Wales Rape Crisis Centre that you can call on 98196565 and we'll post a link up to that as well yeah, I was talking to someone yesterday about how everyone in Hollywood knew this was happening and yet it's the men that are being blamed for their complicity, which is interesting. Yeah, there's also some women to blame as well. Weirdly, Donna Karen, well, maybe not weirdly, but Donna Karen essentially said that women who dress provocatively invited abuse um, and Lindsay Lohan defended him, but she later deleted her, um, deleted her comments. Um, what was her comment? Oh, I think it was like, he never abused me. So that oh, is evidence that he's not an abuser. Um, but I think that people are angry mainly at people like Matt Damon and Ben Affleck um, because of how they were shocked at his crimes. But they also made it, they also said things like, if I had seen it, then I would have done something. Yeah. And, and like Matt Damon was like, these predators operate in like in back rooms and like they don't do it out in yeah, private. and I have a daughter. So if <laughs> anyone would do that to my daughter, I'd kill them. Uh, yeah, and right. it was like, no, you squashed the New York Times article like four years earlier. Yeah, like, right. He's very aware of it, and you protected him. And Ben Affleck also was like, "Oh, I have also have a daughter and a yeah. wife, and I also have a cleaning lady." You know, and they're <laughs> oh, really God. angry about this. And um, and yep. then people were like, "Um, you like groped this woman on, on TV. live TV." There's like all of this like instances of him being like a total predator himself. And he was like, "Oh, sorry, I didn't have a daughter then, uh, so I was just like..." So I didn't understand. Yeah, but now I do. So please stick around because we went out and asked a bunch of different people this week whether critically mocking the privileged men have in society can be achieved in an ironic way without alienating people who have been marginalised by Australian patriarchy, which is a very long sentence, but essentially what we were talking about was an article written about ironic toxic masculinity in bands like Kieran J. Callanan um, and Client Liaison and Alex Cameron. So we got a few great responses from members of All Our Exes Live in Texas, Sticky Fingers, a representative from Listen Records and many more. And we're going to play you those in our segment called Thoughts That Count right after this new track from Kalela. There's an incredible um, article that she wrote for Resident Advisor called Being a Visible Black Woman in the Australian... I'm sorry, not in the, in the music industry, not in the Australian music industry. We'll pop a link up to that on our show page. 
This song right now is Frontline and you're listening to Agenda on FBI Radio. But it ain't no use See it 
Listening to Agenda on FBI Radio, and this is our brand new segment, Thoughts That Count. Uh, we want to hear what you think about feminist issues. I also would like to point out that Katie knows every single word to that song, <laughs> and also had actions and was at one Thank point harmonising. It was really, really quite beautiful. I really like it. Uh, <laughs> this week, we're focusing on an article published by Junkie last month called Alex Cameron, Kieran J. Callanan, and the Problem with Ironic Toxic Masculinity. So, in the article, the um, journalist Jared Richards explores questions of artistic immunity when it comes to celebrated Australian. Australian artists such as Alex Cameron, Client Liaison and Kieran J. Callanan, who all, in his words, indulge the draw of 80s and 90s Australian rock while acknowledging the sexist, homophobic and racist um, roots of our masculinity worshipping culture. So we're going to hear from journalist Jared Richards about why he wrote the article and some of the feedback he received so far. But before we do that, we wanted to know um, whether you thought that um, ironic portrayals of toxic masculinity are a problem in the Australian music industry. So text us <laughs> 0409 945 945 and let us know your thoughts. This is I Jared suppose Richards. the article came out of a sense of discomfort that I felt about all of the three artists that I wrote about, Alex Cameron, Kieran J. Callanan and Client Liaison, because I do like their music to some extent, but I've always been a little thrown off by their portrayal of masculinity, both within their music and their online performances and aesthetics. Uh, they all seem to embody this Australian Oka ideal and play with it uh, to kind of critique it. But I suppose as time goes on and they're bigger that their careers get, especially considering 2017 was such a massive year for the three of them. Alex and Kieran both have their second albums out and Client Liaison's uh, tours have received lots of press coverage, as have the band generally. Uh, as time goes on, I feel like there's less criticalness within that performance and these acts begin to kind of embody these arrogant personas that they set originally to make fun of. I think that they can step over the line that they teeter on as they gain more kind of uh, of a platform, it becomes less of a joke. Um, and perhaps they begin to speak over the voices of artists and people who are perhaps more adept at making these points and critiquing masculine ideals like women or people of colour or queer people. 
this isn't really a new conversation, and it's definitely not like I was the first person to think of this. Uh, journalists like Shad D'Souza, Isabella Tromboli, and Nick Kelly, for starters, have talked about this online a fair bit. Um, but having said that, I hadn't really seen anything in the media about it, and I really wanted to unpack it, um, both my own feelings and those of others. So I wrote the article, and I suppose, um, in terms of the feedback, it feels like a lot of people have kind of been able to point towards it and see something that they've felt uncomfortable about, and maybe being able to express something themselves a little bit more off my original critique, which is great, and there seems to be a really massive conversation starting, um, and people are making their own points and examining their own relationships to these musicians and kind of questioning what they gain out of this sort of jokey, ironic um, critique of masculinity and whether that is really offering anything. That was music writer Jared Richards speaking about his own piece in Junkie Media called Alex Cameron, Kieran J. Callanan and the Problem with Ironic Toxic Masculinity, which is our topic for this week, Thoughts That Count segment. Uh, let us know what you think, 0409 945 945. Um, these artists, whether you think these artists blur the line between critiquing and embodying toxic masculinity um, and how far is too far. So is using homophobic slurs under the guise of a character portrayal too far, for example, like in Alex Cameron's recent track, Marlon Brando? Yeah, last week we asked the question to kind of kick off the conversation and one anonymous listener texted in, how about all the black hip-hop music you constantly play calling bitches, hoes and gays, or is that exempt for, exempt for some reason? Surely there's a lot more to talk about in those lyrics than in the bands you just mentioned, which is interesting. Interesting point. Um, I think probably when we first started Agenda... We may have played... I mean, now we have a wonderful producer and if it wasn't for her, we'd probably be playing a lot more country music, so you can have her to thank for that. Um, but I think in the beginning we played maybe like a little Kim song that did have some what you might call internalized misogyny. <laughs> um, and we also played Kendrick Lamar's Humble, which I think is like one of the, re one of the examples of um, songs that have very sexist lyrics in them but it was as a part of a segment where we were talking about whether or not it was feminist um, but yeah. I do think with hip hop there is a kind of um, confirmation bias where as soon as it comes on if you're not a ha fan of like hip hop music just like if you're not a fan of rock music you'll immediately listen out for the part yeah like you associate it with something that you yeah but I think for most offensive. of the music that we do play that does have that kind of language it's when um, artists are choosing to take back that language. Um, yeah. And to, yeah. Yeah, right. So it might seem like we play a lot of misogynistic music, but we actually play primarily female hip-hop artists like Princess Nokia, Tommy Genesis, and our all-time fave uh, rapper Miss Blanks because they're constantly challenging the very misogynistic stereotypes and rhetoric in hip-hop um, that that lovely anonymous texter was talking about. So I can guarantee that we have never played a song on a gender that has a homophobic slur in it. Yeah, so I think we might... Um, oh, I don't think... Should we listen to what uh, Freddie Krabs had to say? Yeah, good yeah, idea. Cool. This is Freddie Krabs from Sticky Fingers. I thought the article raised a really important point about how irony and humour can be used willy-nilly by a predominantly privileged male class who often poke fun at certain issues that are ultimately triggering for others. I think the writer explained that best through the point on the use of the F word. However, I did think the other examples were kind of clutching at straws and 
weren't the best examples used to really highlight toxic masculinity at its worst. Yeah, I think Freddie Krabs is probably targeting something there that it's definitely the Alex Cameron's part of the um, article that I, pe- I think people really identified at the time and like had the most problems with. But we want to hear what you think too. 0409-945-945. So Connie from the Connie Experience, um, which you might remember from... Plastic Love Attack. Practic- which was a song taken from the point of view of a plastic bag. A seagull. A seagull. Yeah. Yeah, right. Um, she had this to say. I think um, it can sometimes be the only leg to stand on for white cis hetero men in terms of having something to say to very uh, to a very aware audience. These men can't get away with being genuine anymore because maybe we're sick of hearing what they ha- um, have to say about their struggles. This seems like a way that they can still be relevant. Yeah, Lexi from Darlington says, who is allowed to own the ironic trend when these straight white cis men make jokes about toxic masculinity trends in Australia and how women are treated poorly? It doesn't sit comfortably with me as a woman. These men have been have benefited from the exact system that they are standing up against, but making jokes about it being ironically masculine doesn't make them pioneers in gender equality. It only cements the notion that society only listens to straight white cis men. Um, so here's what Hannah Crofts from All Our Exes uh, Live in Texas had to say. Hi, my name's Hannah from All That Exes of in Texas. Um, I read the Junkie article about ironic toxic masculinity and I guess I started wondering um, what is ironic, what, how are these bands ironic? Like what is the, if they're, if they're a tongue-in-cheek band or if they're half silly band or half serious band, like someone like Client Liaison who says that they are a legitimate serious band, then I guess I wanted to work out what's behind that. Um, and I had conversations with 10 different friends in the music industry and no one could articulate um, what is ironic about them or, or even what their goal is or if there is a goal because, you know, maybe there, there isn't a goal. And, um, and so then I guess the thing that's toxic for me about these bands um, is that because it's so unclear what the irony is and what these bands are actually trying to do by promoting, like, client liaison, are promoting a conservative agenda of wealth and, um, you know, their songs are about the monarchy and spending taxpayers' money overseas and, you know, Alex Cameron uses some offensive words in his lyrics and, um, you know, as these cis white men using these words in the song it and, and um, you know, this, these topics... It's interesting to me of how much of this is coming across the audience. So how much is actually uh, the audience is responsible for taking on the message of the act. And I think that's where it's really dangerous because, um, you know, like I've spent a week researching this topic and I am no, no clearer to understanding these bands or what their point is. So if I've actually taken the effort to do that, then what is a 16-year-old boy who is, um, you know, having these messages reinforced to him, how deep is someone actually looking to this? And I think that's, for me, where it actually gets really scary. Um, yeah, I guess they're just reinforcing a structure and um, and, and, and it's, it's at the same time using queer and Indigenous culture, culture insensitively, but, you know, in saying that I am not a queer person or an Indigenous person, so I can't talk on their behalf, but... Um, I, I just wonder how much those groups are doing to empower other groups and how much are they just repeating a message from the 80s without any clarity or any message behind it and just reinforcing certain values. 
You're listening to Agenda on FBI Radio, where we're discussing ironic, toxic masculinity, which has proven quite a controversial topic on the text line. Yeah, um, thank you for your text. Yeah, you thanks for your thoughts. Super angry today. Um, <laughs> Kimchi Princey, a Sydney-based rapper and woman of colour, says, I mean, it seems a similar sort of thing to this past week where Hollywood is starting to shake the shackles off of this Harvey Weinstein thing. Not to parallel this article with sexual misconducts, it's more the fact that these personas seem to sail through this industry in a 40-foot yacht, streamlining with their white privilege, power and righteousness. Even when the sheen is tarnished, they sail on unaffected. Their success happily squeezes away at the cash cow of more marginalised groups and identities. I think it's a positive step that media is openly starting to question these acts, although I don't think it's effectively slowed any of these bros down. The system was made for them and will continue to give them as much space as they desire. Personally, I don't find them enjoyable to watch or listen to. It's actually just uncomfortable AF. (laughs) Maybe like Hollywood right now, one day the Aussie music industry will have a moment on its own and think, WTF. Thanks, Kimchi Princey. Thank you so much. And I think that's all we have time for on Thoughts That Count this we have, week. We have one more. Oh, one we? more Oops. Thought That Counts. Sorry. Okay. This is Janine Noakes, who is a representative of Listen, which is um, a Melbourne-based organisation that exists to cultivate a conversation from a feminist perspective around the experiences of marginalised people in Australian music. Ironic toxic masculinity is pretty pervasive in... Australian music culture at the moment. I don't think it's limited to um, artists like Kieran, Jay Callanan, um, Client Liaison, uh, or Alex Cameron. I think those ideas are pretty pervasive throughout the independent music scene. It can be a little more insidious, um, but I still think it's important to recognise it when it's there. Um, it doesn't help anyone. Um, it, it really is just, it's a joke. It's an in-joke and I feel that it's far more damaging than it is, um, funny or taking the piss out of masculine culture, um, that's existed throughout the music industry in Australia from the seventies onward. Um, like Jared said in their article for Junkie, um, when Alex Cameron uses the slur faggot, it is hurtful to queer people when we hear it. And I think for Alex to then claim that they're challenged by the song, even um, you know, despite its irony, is pathetic. Queer and and femme musicians in Australia at the moment are doing so much to combat masculine performance and masculine ideas in music at the moment. And I think for acts like those mentioned in Jared's article to perform these ideas of toxic masculinity as a joke flies in the face of all that queer musicians and femme musicians are doing to help queer people and femme people feel empowered by the music that's produced and performed for our community. Uh, 
All these skinny bitches dumb, yeah, they know that. I fly high, I'm a mogul, yeah, they see that. Skinny bitches know me, tom the bone. Ass flat, there ain't nut, nothing to hold on. Yeah, he like it when he mix it with a thick chick. Cause she juicy and she wild, that's some real shit. All these skinny bitches check my credentials. Boss bitch, about to steal your man type shit, uh. Better get it, you be trying to hold it down. You're a skinny light bitch, you ain't never had the crown. The crowns are the baddest, the thickest, the hood bitch. Better step back, my space is the realest. You a bona fide sucker, you be fucking the masses. I'ma give you straight F's, skipping all of the classes. I'ma teach you that thickness 101. Like how to grow your asses, so you're the number one. Ha! Yeah, I'm the one and only. The skinny bitches see me, but they still don't know me. I'm that bitch. You don't scare me. Thicker girls understand me. They rollin' through in they mini coops, but the ass is good with dice to soup. Big ass, big tits, big brains to boot. She ain't about the dottery, blue by you. Oh, I see you bum Becky's, yeah, you finna get slaughtered. I knocked you off your block, yeah, I'm hard to ignore. The queen of Brisbane, yeah, she back for some more. I cut you down to size, leave you dead on the floor, yeah. I'm a son on you bitches like Evil Knievel. That shit is deceitful, my flow's unbelievable. But have you heard of that trans rapper Blaine Sass? Thicker than a pockets, where she finna make bank. Miss Blankster's there with Skinny Bitches. You're listening to Agenda on FBI Radio, and we're joined now by Athena Thebus, whose solo exhibition is currently on at 55 Sydenham Road. It's called Dreaming About You Woke Me Up. Thanks so much for joining us, Athena. Oh, of course. What a lovely way to spend Saturday morning. Oh, <laughs> thanks. We've um, been going through some of our mail, which we really yes, appreciate. Your, your hate mail. Yeah. Oh my God. Keep it coming. <laughs> um, so this show is a continuation of your kind of unpacking concept, the concept of shame. Can you talk a little bit is about... It, is it a continuation? Is it a continuation? Yeah, I mean... I, I feel like all of my work is kind of cumulative. Um, actually, the premise of the show was about this text that I wrote last year titled Doggy. Um, and it's kind of like all, it's like all these fragments of all the times that I felt like a dog. And sometimes it's like a cowardly, shameful dog, or it's like this sexy animal. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and so I kind of wanted to make like a reading room for like one segment of the text um, and that, that's, that's the 55 show. That's what the exhibition is? Yeah. And it uses, is neon, it, there's a quite a big neon piece as yes. part of the show. Is that like a recent, because I've seen a lot of your previous work before without the neons in it, is that like a recent addition to your practice? Or? It is. I mean, I've always wanted to make a neon because it's like just so sexy. And also <laughs> I needed a lamp for my room and I was like, oh. I should just make a neon. <laughs> <laughs> and then I can have it after the show. <laughs> so is it like a dog tongue? Oh, uh, no, it's just, it's just, just a, a drawing of a tongue. Mm. Yeah. Also, you're making a work with Marcus Whale for live works as well. I am. Um, in the day for night. So it's a 12-hour space that features performances, installation, and dance floor. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Marcus is really the star of this um, show. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's his song, um, and it's he sings the same song four times, but in different iterations throughout the night. So two in the daytime and the two in the nighttime. 
And it's about Lucifer. We both have a mutual appreciation for the fallen angel Lucifer as this, like, queer icon. Um, and it starts off really minimal and it, like, gradually gets thicker and thicker. Yeah. I didn't know Lucifer was a queer icon. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. I guess it's, like, fallen, forsaken angel mm. who's, like, really beautiful. Mm. Yeah. Cool. And, the, like, those kind of iconic words as well like angel and divine and some of those terms have featured quite strongly in your work in the past yes I love like that kind of celestial Catholicism it's really distilled from like my Filipino mom yeah yeah I was gonna say like the Philippines has a very strong kind of Catholic but like as a colony as well it kind of takes on a very different yes also like darker because of that colonial history. Definitely. It's way more dramatic. I, it seems to be like um, Catholicism in countries that have been like colonised by the Spanish have this different flavour that's like... I know, it's like more flowery and vibrant and like it's got that real kind of drama between light and dark. Um, and I'm so into it. And you recently went back to the Philippines. I did, or in went May. to the Philippines, yeah. Yes, because my parents live there now. Yeah, and yeah. how was, was that trip important for your work? It is. Um, I've made a lot of work to do with my cousins um, because it's a really good group, mostly boys. um, And I guess we're all kind of mixed race. And I I think that is interesting to me um, because it's not really something that I see every day, um, but something really special that we all hold together. And what's the the work that you've made with your cousin? Oh, I take a lot of photos of them. My work is really devotional. I love just like, I know, adoring someone. Yeah. That's really beautiful. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Devotional, but also reflective of your own like identity, right? Yes, definitely. Um, Can you tell us about your interest in Filipino ghost stories? Yes. (laughs) Oh my God, they used to scare me. Um, My cousin, my older cousin, Jack, is a really great um, storyteller. And there are so many, like, there's like a lot of witchy folklore in the Philippines. And it's really... I've like done some research on this and it's really interesting to see that pre-Spanish colonization, um, like Filipino women who are witchy had this really like important central part in like um, just like everyday life. They're like herbalists, ritualists, they were like doctors, they were community leaders. And then post kind of like throughout the Spanish colonization, that kind of character, that archetype becomes like this flesh eating Aswang Bruja monster mm-hmm. and I just I love those two I love them both but I just want to get back to that that um that original like community leader like yeah. sense of devotion almost as well yes definitely yeah um yeah and is that like reflected in the way that um I don't know your work articulates these kind of like notions of shame but also devotion like that kind of duality yes definitely yeah most of my I just feel like I'm pulled at both ends yeah yeah and where can people, how long is your current show on for? It's up until the 22nd. So a couple more weekends. At 55 Sydenham Road. Yes. Fantastic. So good. I think We're excited it's... for the live works as well. Yeah. Really yes, beautiful. I'm so excited. Mm. And it's going to yeah. be a party. <laughs> <laughs> and you're also doing a work as, that was just announced for Sugar Mountain Festival? Yes. Marcus. With, with Marcus? Yes. Amazing. So good. It's going to be like another kind of, it's going to take that Lucifer thing a bit further. Awesome. That sounds yeah. really interesting. I'd love to. That's a great lineup too. Yeah. I was having a look at it. It looks very exciting. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Justin Shoulder. Yeah. Oh my God. Carry on. I love yeah. it. <laughs> what an incredible array of artists and musicians. Um, thank you so much for coming Yeah. In thanks really heaps. Us no, thank you for about. this really important discussion that you were talking about earlier. I feel like we need a follow up. 
we can definitely I think have a follow up just to get through. All yeah, I feel like we need feedback. to get through all of our very important text messages, <laughs> <laughs> people's opinions. <laughs> so maybe we'll uh, speak to you further down the line about that. Um, stick around because we're going to be chatting to uh, Agatha Ghostsnape and Megan Alice Clune up next. This song is "Change." You're an agenda. <laughs> Agenda on FBI Radio. We're joined now by Agatha Goatsnape and Megan Alice Clune. Thank you so much for joining us, both of you. It's a pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> so nice to have you here on Agenda on this lovely Saturday morning. Um, so we're talking about your work that is opening next week as part of LiveWorks Festival of Experimental Art called Rhetorical Chorus. Um, Agatha, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about, maybe in a nutshell, like the concept of Rhetorical Chorus. Hmm. It's hard to put in a nutshell, isn't it? Yeah, someone keeps saying it's very ambitious and I'm thinking it's quite, it's it's a bit deranged actually. (laughs) (laughs) Like um, I, 
was really interested in, I guess I always use appropriation kind of as a strategy in my work, mainly the appropriation of like uh, other moments in Western art history. And um, and I was watching videos in like t a long time ago, 2009, YouTube videos of an artist who was quite influential to me, Lawrence Weiner, a male artist, a kind of West Coast um, conceptual artist, very big in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, still very huge artist, canonical artist. And I was watching videos of him talking, kind of like pontificating, talking about his work, philosophizing. And what I was interested in is not kind of the primary output of his artwork, although I'm very, I do love it, nor the secondary output of his talking, but kind of the inadvertent output. So like the way his hands were kind of gesticulating. And I was like, what if I took that as a starting point for a work? So I began to make a vocabulary of all his hand gestures. And we did this very long period of research, named all his hand gestures, worked out kind of the language of his hands as distinct from the other forms of output. And from that vocabulary, um, I then uh, engaged Meg, Megan Clune, to um, work with to kind of create a, a choral score. So we could kind of begin to hear the, um, I guess, the physical rhetoric of this 20th century male artist. How did you go about creating that score, Meg? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was quite the challenge, actually, <laughs> unsurprisingly. Um, I, so when this work was originally made in 2015 for Performer, um, I came on board and made this... Uh, a set of instructions basically for a choir to interpret it. So it was quite literal in its um, interpretation. Um, and then this time it's sort of been more about, it's been quite revised for this iteration of it. Um, and it's more about sort of taking that as a starting point and then moving beyond um, in order to, I guess, make something new from Lawrence's influence. I kind of like the idea of the debris. So like we're really dealing with the debris of the 20th century and using mm. that as somewhere to like move away from like to kind of transcend or transcend is maybe too dramatic, but like um, to find new sense from this kind of um, yeah wrecked monuments kind of of the 20th century. Yeah. Mm. And you've assembled a choir for this work. Can you talk about some of the artists that are involved that are in the choir? Yeah. I mean, I feel like choir is almost... Um, uh, denigrating them. <laughs> They're all such amazing individual artists um, and this score also that I've made is also about le giving them a lot of freedom to bring their own practice and their own um, selves into the work and interpret the gestures in their own way. Um, so we have an incredible group of people, um, Eugene Choi, Rainbow Chan, Marcus Whale, Alex Dennison, um, Sonia Hollowell and Adam Connolly. And they are all... Um just it's just been so unbelievable to watch them come into the work I mean a lot of my practice and thinking around art is about how we embody knowledge and then how we express that kind of how things come into us and how they leave us and just um, in this iteration of rhetorical chorus I've also engaged Brooke Stamp and Lizzie Thompson to incredible choreographers and dancers um, to see how they would interpret the score physically so mm. we're kind of and also Brian Ford I, I you know <laughs> so many incredible collaborators in this work um, but the, the kind of the task of the work is to allow this kind of the, this knowledge or this like fragment fragmented reconstructed knowledge to enter the body and leave it and so what you see in this work is that happening to all these different performers in all different ways and it creates this 
chorus. Like I think mm. choir is the wrong word. Like it is yeah. a chorus, yeah. mm. and um, it's just oh, it's just been so exciting to mm. watch that really happen. These processes of of embodiment. Yeah, and I guess you're also taking this very singular kind of form of knowledge dissemination and putting that into different bodies and different voices and different ways of moving and it really mm. does create this sense of like I don't know, like a like a huge kind of range of voices that are speaking and I, I that was one of my questions about um actually I'm I feel like sometimes it's a little bit sarcastic as well like it can like I watching the showing and watching Brian's kind of um way that he talks about Lawrence Weiner's work mm. and I, I was wondering whether you I know you're a fan of Lawrence Weiner but do you ever kind of oscillate between trying to really challenge that rhetoric of like the male genius artist kind of thing um I mean I think um uh, like the ambivalence is the word I mm. use to describe my relationship to these figures and to art history in general. Like I, I'm interested in um, an intermittent flickering between homage and critique, and I and I feel that's what my relationship to art mm. history is and these figures. Because um, yeah, I'm I I acknowledge his influence in my practice mm. as well, but I always want to bring those things into question and transform them and and bring new light to those relationships we have with historical figures. Um, especially when I met, like I had a chance encounter with him at the airport. Oh, you did. I was going to ask if you had, if it had reached him. <laughs> yeah. So, in, um, so he obviously is aware of the work, and um, performer wrote to him and let him know when we did the work in 2015. Mm. But but the precursor of the work was in 2009 when I was already kind of really interested in like collecting his hand gestures. Um, I got off the aeroplane at LAX, and he was standing next to me. So I, just coincidentally, it was it was. I mean, I feel like it was the it was necessary for the work to, to be born, <laughs> yeah. but like that enabled this moment of intimacy and touch, and really broke down this idea of like the canon just through touch. And I and that's kind of g- gave me the impetus to like follow like extend this work to its maximum limit. And I think when you like really push a quite a like ridiculous kind of um, quite absurd idea something can transform and happen there's so many transformations in this work and like Megan does the score speak to the choreography like how do those things kind of correlate I guess in the work Um, we've been Brooke Stamford has been facilitating these amazing um, warm-up workshop exercises throughout it so it really is a lot about embodiment um, and the sound coming from that embodiment as well. I think, yeah, look, we've been really, like, so even though there are people, the dancers, there's, you know, Lizzie and Brooke are trained dancers and choreographers and the choir are trained vocalists but also mm. performers, we've been trying to, like, completely um, destroy any, dis- like, mm. categorization in the in all the performers. So really the act of vocalising and the act of moving are always the same thing. Mm. Like, this is always the same thing. We never... Like this idea that there's distinct distinctions between disciplines, we're we're just mm. really trying to like through practice, kind of move away from that. And finally, um, you have a pretty renowned American vocalist involved oh. as well. <laughs> yeah. What is a transmitter? Right, Can so, you talk um, us through that? So Joan LaBarbera, who is, um, I would say, one of the most important figures in extended vocal technique, definitely um, yeah. in the world. Um, Morton Feldman wrote her an album. Mm-hmm. She, she worked with John Cage. She was a student of John Cage. She's one of mm. the main holders of um, lots of the knowledge of John Cage. Mm. Um, she, I met her during. We met her during Performer, where she worked as, where we engaged her as the transmitter. And I really wanted like, so it was kind of um, just 
an amazing chance meeting with her as well. But to have this female figure that is so important in kind of a very mm. particular history um, connected to the like musical avant-garde and mm. and artistic visual arts avant-garde come into the work to kind of balance this the source material of Weiner was so amazing. And so what I wanted ultimately is Joan to be the information kind of, she's the ultimate transmitter, so it passes through her and she expresses it in, now she is like the closing epilogue. And, mm. um, you know, so working between Brian and Joan, um, both, and they both speak the rearranged words of Weiner um, that kind of frame the work. And mm. so, yeah. And Joan had met and worked or oh, knows Lawrence quite well as yeah. well, which is, I think, an important aspect to her yeah, contribution to it. Absolutely. Yeah. And she, she understands all the complexity of ambivalence mm. and the, the tongue-in-cheek quality of the work. Um, yeah. And she's, it's just such an honour to have her in Australia. She's actually got a, a series of um, lecture performances and recitals, is that what you call it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, in the next few days. So please, um, please. I mean, it's just such a privilege to have her in Australia. It's amazing. Agatha and Megan, thank you so much for coming in to chat to us about Rhetorical Chorus. It opens next Thursday night at Liveworks Festival of Experimental Art, which is uh, based at Carriage Works, which actually marks our one-year anniversary of yeah. Agenda on oh, FBI Radio. Congratulations. Thank you. We Our f- very first guest was um, performance space artistic director Jeff Kahn, and he came to speak to us about last year's Liveworks Festival, um, which is super exciting. And as a celebration of that and as a celebration of Liveworks opening, we actually have a double pass to give away to Isa Hoxie, uh, lecture at the Art Gallery of New South Wales, which is happening tomorrow morning in the lead up to Liveworks next week. Um, so Isa is a Filipino dancer and choreographer who is featured in one of our favourite... I think uh, we should repost that. It's we should, good Yeah, she's clip, featured the in this Peaches film clip where she does her macho dancing, which she did at Liveworks last it's year. Incredible. She's an incredible artist and her new work is going to be all about the Filipino, Filipino body and how it's gendered, especially in Disney culture at, at Disney mm. World in the Philippines. So um, if you want to check that out at Art Gallery of New South Wales tomorrow, please send us a text message message on 0409-945-945. Just tell us your first and last name. And thanks for all your text messages today. Thanks, yeah, thanks <laughs> for all your very important text messages on ironic toxic masculinity. I feel like that'll be a conversation that we'll probably keep going Need to revisit. over the next few weeks. <laughs> um, <laughs> a lot of feelings. <laughs> stick around for weekend lunch. Uh, you've been listening to Agenda on FBI Radio.